0: well, you know, it is NFL season. It's like week seven or something. You know those quarterback back tip behind center, Danny Moses? It's Omaha, Idaho, all that bullshit. Well, if I were a quarterback, this is what I'd be saying, okay? You getting ready for me? 85, 168, PTJ, hike. <laughs> now, some folks will know exactly what I'm talking about. I know Dan Nathan does, but that's what I would be doing behind center. And we're going to talk about all three of those things as
1: we get into this week's On The Tape. Fellas, how are you? Good, Guy. I'm still wondering when this Daniel Jones, speaking of quarterbacks, will start to emerge (laughs) because he's had a fantastic two weeks, man, were you spot on with when he made that road trip to Dallas. Anyway, let's go on.
0: Let's go on. I, I will tell you this right now. Yes, he's had a rough two weeks. Obviously, getting knocked out of that Cowboy game was not good, and last week he sucked, but I am still a believer in Daniel Jones, Danny
2: Moses. Dan Nathan, you got anything you want to say before we get into this thing? Yeah, I want to say, uncle, Danny Moses has been destroying me in our NFL picks each week. So we got to stick around to the end of this thing. Maybe I get some redemption.
0: By the way, you're
2: listening to On the Tape.
0: I am Guy Adami, joined as always by my dear friends, plural, Dan Nathan and Danny Moses. Another big show for you today. Stocks are back at record highs. Earnings are in full swing. And the Bitcoin ETFs are here, folks Later, we'll go off the tape with Preet Barrara, the former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York and current podcast extraordinaire. Well, markets are at all time highs. And if you did listen to the beginning of the show, I said 85, 168, PTJ. Well, 85 is the price of crude oil, Dan Nathan. 168 is where the 10 year yield is. Dan Nathan and oh by the way PTJ Danny it's like the freaking dude's been listening to on the tape for the last nine months
1: everything is lining up the only thing that doesn't make a lot of sense to moi is the S&P 500 Paul Tudor Jones man it's like he's been listening to us or maybe he should just host this podcast he was around for the 1987 as well so I think he had that thing right So he's seen this type of market before. He's seen this type of inflation potentially before. And so he didn't say anything that shouldn't be obvious to people. But I guess inflation is taking all assets up equally, whether it's energy, whether it's rates, whether it's the stock market. And the stock market is an asset, so it's temporarily moving higher. I would say that we certainly got the great earnings at the beginning and we're starting to see earnings that aren't as good. How long this can last, I don't know, but no one seems to care at the moment and we're just gripping and ripping. Yeah, but you say not as good. Danny, I saw Netflix, which rallied like 15%
2: to an all-time high into their Q3 print. They gave Q4 guidance that eh, maybe on subscribers wasn't fantastic. The stock sold off like a couple percent. Here we are two days later, the stock is ripping. It's at a new all-time high. It's up four and a half percent. This is Thursday afternoon. Tesla, uh, is rallied 55% from May. It's up 15% in a month. And you would have thought that they would have had to put up the sort of quarter. Diamond eyes or laser eyes type of quarter, Dan. Something like that. And that stock traded down maybe a percent or two is now up. So I look out, Facebook is going to report Monday after the close, that stock was down, what, at its lows, guys, 17 or so percent from its high.
0: Got down to $321, I believe, before doing an about-face. But before you sort of rip the Band-Aid off of Danny Moses, let me just read a quote, okay? Just give me a second. Is that okay, no, Dan? Please. a second. Will you indulge me? This is from Paul Tudor Jones. I think, to me, the number one issue facing Main Street investors is inflation. And it's pretty clear to me, this is not Guy Adami, this is not Danny Moses, pretty clear to me, Paul Tudor Jones, that inflation is not transitory. You hear me banging on the table right there? It's not. So when I say it, it's one thing, okay, because I'm just a meathead. But when Paul Tudor Jones says it, it's entirely something different. Now all of a sudden, all these people are
1: coming to our side of the boat. Maybe that's a problem. I don't know, Danny Moses, but I see it the way PTJ sees it. Let me just say, Dan, I'm not saying that earnings are worse than expected. I'm saying we got the good names come out early. There are issues. You saw Procter & Gamble come out. You saw these issues that Guy's referring to that are embedded now into some of these companies. I do think something that's being overlooked. Obviously, this Build Back Better that was supposed to be 3500000000000 trillion, we're hearing now maybe $2 trillion, maybe $1.75. One of the things in there that was going to pay for this was a corporate tax hike going from 21 to 28%. That now is gone. That started to leak out in the market kind of late Tuesday, Wednesday. That's probably not getting enough credit for just ripping the S and P higher because that is a direct hit to S and P earnings to a degree over time. So factor that stuff in, and I think you're just getting an excuse to run this market higher.
2: Yeah, and I would just say that if we get back to a point where okay, you're coming out of guy, you talked about crude at 85. I see the energy complex down. I see material stocks down. I see the potential for higher rates. The dollar has definitely moderated a little bit. I mean, I think we talked about this last week. If you were to see commodity prices come in, I think that would be great for the stock market. But if you're going to rotate out of more GDP-sensitive sectors then what do they go into? Guys, did you see how quickly Microsoft went down 10% and then went back and made a new all-time high? How quickly Apple bounced off of what was nearly an 18% peak to drop decline? Amazon has had a killer bounce. I'm like the big dummy. I think about two and a half weeks ago on CNBC's Fast Money, we were talking about Amazon. It was at 3,200. I said 3,000 before 3,400. It's trading at 3,440 right now. My point is, some of those names are just going to be immune to some of these issues as it relates to inflation, but not supply chains
1: and bottlenecks. The supply chain, didn't you hear it's all fixed because the Long Beach port's been running 24 7. So now there's only 3,000 ships in the ocean. Let me go back to Tesla for a second. And before I do that, let me just say I feel like Sergeant Holka in stripes right now when he gets bombed off of that tower that he's on (laughs) and he falls in the ground, and all he can say is, (laughs) <laughs> at, at. That's the literally the how toe. I feel right now. No, the big toe. Honestly, where am I right now? But let me just say, we've talked about this before. And Dan, you just brought up a point: stocks moving higher from where they were. What is the incremental news and information that's come out to move these stocks? Forget about absolute value. I don't care if Tesla earns a buck eighty-four in the quarter, a buck forty-eight, or two dollars and forty-two cents. I'm not even going to go through whether those are real earnings or not. The adjustments that are in there. So annualize it. I don't care. There's no justification from a valuation perspective. It's Can money flow to these various areas? It didn't go down $30, so therefore it must be a buy, and the shorts lost ammo again, and here come the longs buying it. It's the market action which is more important. The scoreboard is not only telling me that I'm wrong right now about the market in general, but there's money still trying to find a home in this market. I believe eventually it's gonna run out of places to go. So I got behind center, I
0: said 85, 168, PTJ. So we covered the PTJ part. Dan just poo-pooed me on the 85 part. But Danny Moses, that 168 part, let's not gloss over that sucker, because here we are tenure yields within a whisper. Of the March highs. And oh, by the way, Dan Nathan did mention this. The dollar, which had been screaming higher, all of a sudden is doing an about face. So I ask you, Danny Moses, if rates continue to go higher while the dollar starts to go lower,
1: what does that say to you, Danny Moses of the big chill? The the answer is we will have a problem. And we said before, it is the trajectory. It is the speed with which it moves. But it's also the absolute number. I think when you start to think about a 2% number, going in, like we talked about, to consumer finance companies, to credit spreads in general, it will have an impact. It just doesn't matter right now. Oil's going to move on the NOAA saying it's going to be a warmer than expected winter. I care more about Vladimir Putin than I do about the weather service trying to predict something because there isn't a government agency that's been able to predict anything about anything for the last 10 years. I am on fire today. Dan, say something. All right, I'm going to say Trump's back.
0: Whoa,
2: whoa, whoa. So I didn't know you
0: wanted to go there. I didn't know you wanted to go there, but let's bring it up. Since you did bring it up, yes, there was a SPAC. I guess it went on Thursday or something. The thing was up, limit up, limit down, limit up. And I know, Dan, I just know you so well. That must have made your blood
2: boil, your hair curl. Honestly, it is the suckers and losers SPAC, if you think about it. And Dan Primack over there at Axios, he tweeted something out. He was like, I would have been dying to call peak SPAC for months and months and months. And I said, no, this isn't peak Smack. This is tross SPAC. And Danny, you got to get in here because the thing is called Truth or something like that. It's going to merge with this company Truth that has a social media platform that is basically Twitter white labeled. It's not even built yet. They don't have any executives yet. And I guess, the sponsor for the SPAC is somebody
1: from Wuhan China you can't make this shit up you cannot make it up it's headquartered in Wuhan it's corporate headquartered in Cayman perfect tax jurisdiction it's great as our most corporations that's fine this guy Tony Orlando from Orlando and Don (laughs) the thing is the CEO he's had four failed SPAC attempts and get this the broker is freaking EF Hutton no stop you can't even make it up. Yeah, EF Hutton was rebranded from another company, I think Kingswood or something, a couple guys that came from a couple other firms. That's fine. It's EF Hutton. It has no revenue, obviously, but in hindsight, I should have held my nose and bought it at 12. Why? One, because you knew that it would get some action. Two, because the downside's only 10, as we all know, in it's back. And who knows where this thing could go? I'm not even going to say go short it, but maybe today's the day. Maybe every week on every Friday morning, I'll say, guys, I think the market's at it. If this isn't a sign, I don't know what is. So I could go on and on about this thing. But yes, it has no revenues. I will say this. At least Trump actually owns something of an asset that can actually be measured at this point. So at least he's got that going for him.
0: So when I hear on and on, of course, I hearken back to Stephen Bishop's song, "The Great On and On." Down in Jamaica, you mentioned the Cayman Islands. I don't know if we're allowed to play that in this podcast. We probably don't have rights to it, but I'll sing it maybe later on the outro, as they say. <laughs> Dan Nathan, Brian Kelly is the OG baller for the Bitcoin and the crypto. But I got to tell you something. You're like 2.0, and you've been spot on with all these things. You talk about the ether. you talk about all these different coins like you know your shit here we are bitcoin at an all-time high a two and a half
2: trillion dollar market cap for the crypto world dan nathan bully for you Guy, you give me way too much credit here. I'm intellectually curious in the space. I own some of this stuff. We've been talking about it a whole heck of a lot over the last year or so. The volatility has been out of control. When you think of the run up that we had into that Coinbase IPO back in April and then nearly every single one of these crypto assets getting cut in half. Well, here we are in a straight line in a matter of months back at the all time highs. We just had this Bitcoin ETF that listed. We know that the SEC is going to rule on a bunch of others. There's a lot of criticism about the way that these things are constructed here, 30% futures. We had Terry Duffy, the CEO of the CME, also the sponsor of this fine podcast on last week talking about this. I think investors should be excited. It gives more people the opportunity to get exposure to Bitcoin, whether it's one for one, whether it's spot, whether it's ETF, whether it's futures. So all of that's been good. I just wonder from a sentiment standpoint, if we've kind of worked into a near term
1: over extended phase. Dan, I give you credit. When Ethereum broke 3,000, you said to me, I'm waiting, I'm buying. I think it's over 4,000 right now. So good for you. I'm very happy for you. And yes, I think that the foundation is in place for people that easier access to buy both Bitcoin and Ethereum or whatever else they want. But when I see this continued stuff, and not just the Dogecoin, but the other dog coins that are out there, I can't help but think that the froth is still there. There was someone on Twitter that went at us, and it was really towards me, and I'll take the brunt of this. It said, Why would you ever use gold over Bitcoin in an inflationary environment? And nothing against Bitcoin. But my comment was gold is a proven inflation hedge. We haven't had to deal with inflation. Wait, 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 hold on.
2: I have to interrupt you. It's a proven inflation hedge. In the last six to nine months, this is the highest point of inflation expectations that we've had
1: decades and gold's gone nowhere. Excuse me. It's a proven inflation hedge, if you'll let me finish my sentence, oh. throughout history. We haven't had inflation in this entire generation, Dan. <laughs> if Bitcoin didn't exist right now, I don't think you would argue with me the goal would be Certainly, well north of 2000. Who knows where it would be? And yes, it is stealing its thunder. But when I hear the argument that Bitcoin should be used as an inflation hedge and not golden, credit to everybody, whatever excuse they want to use to buy it, great. But it's unproven in any quote cycle. And yes, it's still growing. My argument is it may not need inflation to go to 100,000. But if you want to use that as an excuse, and I think that's what's been going on in general with assets everywhere. You see where the stock is going or the cryptocurrency or whatever, and then you back your way into a reason that it's there. That's a convenient reason to say that it's there. I'm I'm not arguing that it's not being traded that way. What I'm saying is we haven't tested it yet environment. And the last thing I'll say is Hindenburg research. God bless them. These guys don't get enough credit for uncovering frauds. They're putting out a million dollar bounty for someone that can prove that Tether is a fraud. I could call them and probably do it in three seconds or there's much smarter people than me. But again, there's still the plumbing is still questionable underneath. Forget about the brilliant people. And yes, they are brilliant. And I respect so many of these people that love Bitcoin. But Dan, if it went to 22,000 tomorrow, Would you be overly shocked? Would you be? Could it go to no.
2: 100000 Danny, I know a lot of people, I actually wanted to come in because I want to buy more. I think that's the sort of thing in a way is like when you see an asset go up double in a matter of months in a way and you actually have a long-term view on it, you actually don't want to see it go straight up. And that's at least the way that when I came into the business in the late 90s, and Danny, I know you were in trading in the markets and Guy, you were trading in the markets. When we saw a lot of these things that were unproven, Danny, like you said about the Bitcoin, the tickers were YHOO and AM, Zn and AOL and XCIT, these things were going up in a straight line, doubling every few months or something like that. And it was really hard to get your arms around what the long-term prospects for them are. And I'm not saying... I bought Amazon in 1999 and and suffered an 85% peak to drop decline and a 65 peak to drop decline in 08. I'm not saying that those are easy to hang on to. I just think the history of disruptive technology tells us if you can pick the winners and you can have staying power, it's going to be the thing that puts the braces on your kids and sends them to college
0: number of things I'll take from this conversation. Danny mentioned there's problems underneath with the plumbing. I share some of those problems, but there are actually some pharmaceuticals that help with that, number one. Number two, I know I'm a classic music person, not classic rock, classical music, a Richard Wagner fan. You might recall he wrote The Ride of the Valkyries a shitty Tom Cruise movie, a great scene, by the way, if you recall, in Apocalypse Now. Why do I mention that? Because, hey, shove another ETF out, there the Bitcoin Valkyrie Fund or something, which drops as well. That'll be a fun one for all the boys and girls this holiday season. Everybody in the pool. It's a wonderful world. Now, as I've mentioned, that Pearl Jam song, that ever grand song that we sing, I know Dan likes to go to the concerts. Well, Danny Moses was ahead of this.
1: Although the news isn't talking about it, this story is far from over. And they it finally started trading again. I think it was down 20%, but who cares? And more importantly, what has it caused and what are the after effects going on in China right now? Last night, the Chinese government came out and said, we're not that worried. We think it's contained. Yet, defaults are still occurring. Purchases are actually slowing down in the core business. They're trying to basically change their tune a little bit. That, along with Jack Ma being seen in Europe, yachting, I think, is giving people a little bit of a deep breath that maybe China has realized are starting to overstep a little bit. But there are still major issues. And now it's become self-fulfilling in the real estate market in China that consumers are no longer putting down down payments for fear. that it won't. This thing can spiral on itself, almost like a bank falling and taking money out. It's the opposite effect here. So we're not out of the woods by a long shot there. I think the market wants to see what it wants to see right now. And money flows are just too powerful.
0: No, but it's interesting, though, some of these Chinese stocks, the champions, for example, Alibaba, I think, I want to say it traded down to 137. Please don't at me if I'm off by a buck or so. But as we're doing this, the stock is north of 175. All these Chinese stocks have bounced. I'm just curious, Dan Nathan, is the worst over headline
2: risk-wise for some of these names, or is it going to be around three, four, five going forward? I just think there's probably much better places as far as like U.S. listed companies. And most of those companies are U.S. listed that we're talking about here to probably invest in given the uncertainty. And the point is, is if there is any dust up, if there's anything going on with Taiwan over the next few months, you're not going to want to own any of those U.S. listed names.
1: Guy, let me just add one other thing that proves the plumbing that is still not perfect in the Bitcoin word. I think our producer is getting a live feed right now. Amanda Diaz, can you come on and read what happened today, please? Sure. It says Bitcoin briefly crashed 87% to 8,200 on Binance's U.S. crypto platform. And thank you, Amanda. Okay. So anyway, I just wanted to make sure it wasn't me saying it. So anyway, back to everything. That's it. I got nothing else to say on the matter. The Danny Moses voice is so good. And by the way, I love your buddies,
0: the guys with two first names, both of them. I love those cats. We've become so tight on the Twitter.
1: It's just such a familiar thing with the On The Tape family. They actually know me so well. They both called me today to see, quote, how I was doing. I go, what are you worried about? They're like, well... Trump's back came out, went up 300%. Tesla's ripping. We're just checking on your mental well-being, and I just yelled Shomer Shabbos and got off the phone. All
0: right, so here we are. We're on the eve of Halloween, so we're getting towards year end. Let's just do a quick 30 seconds each. What are you looking for? I'll start because why not? I'll start. This is what I'm looking for. I mention rates all the time. I think I mention them for good reason. I'm of the belief that tenure yields will close the year either side of 2%. I think the dollar will be under pressure. I think this commodity move, which is stalled out in the short term, is going to reaccelerate itself. I think banks will trade okay. Certain financials, I think insurers will do exceptionally well. They're the most levered towards higher rates. But I think some of these high flyers, some of these high valuation, high growth names are going to take it on the
2: chin. Dan Nathan. It's interesting. And Danny's been bringing this up on the podcast for months now and this notion of like slowing growth, but higher rates, higher commodity prices and the whole stagflation thing. I kind of buy it. I thought the Paul Tudor Jones interview was pretty fascinating. I listened to all 22 minutes of it and he seems pretty steadfast that the Fed has massively overstepped their welcome, that they are doing the exact opposite thing that they should be doing. And when a guy like that feels that he's that confident of a policy mistake, it makes me a little nervous as far as the stock market's concerned. I mean, here we are, the S&P 500 is back at its all-time highs for all intents and purposes. The NASDAQ has not made a new high, and I think that's really interesting. So as we get into Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, I think it'll be really interesting to see, especially with Microsoft at an all-time high, whether those stocks can drag the rest of the market higher. I suspect they can't. So in the face of like a stagflationary environment, Guy, if you're going to have your higher rates, I do think the dollar is going to go higher. Ultimately, that's not going to be a great thing for a lot of U.S. multinationals. So to me... The Q4 guidance is going to be as clear as mud, and are we going to have a runaway breakout from here on out? I don't really think so. So if we do have a very sharp rate move higher in the near term, I suspect that we see stocks testing the lows from just a couple of weeks ago.
1: I will say we're getting through the earnings. We're probably 30 to 40% there, maybe even a little bit less. So as we move towards Halloween, a week away or whenever that might be, we'll get to that. Then what's next? The Fed meeting on November 2nd and 3rd, and we'll get Fed guidance obviously on taper. And it's not a dot plot vote or anything like that, but I think people will be anxious going into that. Secondly, you have the debt ceiling issue, which is still December 3rd. That hasn't changed at all. That's gonna rear its head. And then is Powell gonna get reappointed? I think that's a big deal. Maybe it's a non market moving event, but it is an overhang. And maybe now that they've fixed their insider trading issue by saying that it can only be mutual funds in thirty to forty five days in advance, oh And when the market is in stressful environments, well, I'm stressed out right now, I don't know about everybody else, but when the market's in stressful environments, you can't trade at all. So there's a lot of cleanup going there. So I think we'll move from this earnings fundamental to a government monetary fiscal side of things. And yes, they're going to sign an infrastructure bill of some kind. Yes, they're going to sign a Dial down, build back better bill of some kind. But all these issues, nothing's changed here. And the issues that we're going to face inflation, not only is it not transitory, it takes a long time to seep into the system for when you first see it. So I think we're going to see that. I still think earnings are too high for 2022. And I don't know when it's going to be, but there's going to be a reckoning at some point. James
0: Khan appeared in many great movies. One of his greatest movies that a lot of people don't know about, fellas, is called The Gambler. And one of the lines in that movie is I'm scorching. I'm scorching. Well, you know who has been scorching? Danny Moses in his predictions in the league where they're compensated for their participation. That would be the NFL. So Danny, I think you're 9-0 and oh here on 9-0. On and oh, That is unheard of, unprecedented. You should basically bow out now and say, that's it, I'm done. But you won't because you got a steel set. So put your steel set on the line and give me a couple <laughs> picks for this weekend's Week 7
1: contests. Let me just say that I'd rather be 0-9 and, and get the market call right than be 9-0 and 0 and get the market call wrong. But I don't know if the end's going to take the other side of this. So some weeks I have one pick, some weeks I have two. There's a lot of large spreads out there this week. There's not a lot of great games, but there is one standing out. And I apologize to the Jet fans that are out there, but are you kidding me? The Patriots are seven-point favorites against the Jets. Bill Belichick owns the Jets. What happened in week two? He beat them 25 to 6. Why are the Jets getting seven and not more? Oh, because they had a bye week. They had an extra week to figure out everything that they're doing wrong. The Patriots actually are a much better team than their record. They should have beaten Tampa Bay. They should have beaten Dallas and they should have beaten Miami. They should act. They could have three more wins than they currently have. You don't think Belichick's angry as hell. His defense is probably one of the best in the NFL. I take the Patriots. I lay seven. I bet that game six ways to Sunday, mm. which is going to be on Sunday. So, Dan, I yeah. doubt you want the other side of this. No but, way. Oh, maybe then I'm going to no lose. Way. This right, is not so, – Okay. So, so, Dan, okay. so no, Patriots, Danny, I'll take
2: I'll take yeah. Patriots minus seven. No!
1: No! I will take that, that, I would no. love that. I would it's love going that. to end. So, Dan, you don't want to take the other side of the Jets. I don't blame you. I don't know why you would want to take the Jets. But why don't you this week pick a game, and I'll be forced to take the other side. Now, this isn't technically one of my picks. We'll let you pick, and I'll just take the other side. What would you like to bet on <laughs>
2: Baltimore at home versus Cincinnati. Baltimore giving six and a half points. I want to
1: take Baltimore. All right, you can take Baltimore. I'll take Cincinnati. I don't love it, but I'll do it anyway. And how much are we doing on these? Five hundred. Five hundred. Man, you guys are. Please hitters. do me a favor, Dan, and don't bet on the Patriots. You cannot take the job, but just. To, I need to keep my streak alive. Just don't do it, please. I'm begging you. <laughs> Done. I'm begging you. So All this right. week, Danny Moses likes the Patriots laying the wood.
0: He likes because he has to. He's taken the Bengals with the wood. Dan Nathan has taken the Ravens minus six and a half. I love this. I'm enjoying this. When we come back, by the way, now I just thought of this as we were just sitting here as I was listening to these guys opine. If Preet was clever, like I know he is, he should go to Ari Melber and say, I want the name of your show. It would be, ready for this? The Beat with Preet. Genius. Genius.
1: Yeah, he should be in
0: marketing. You're magnificent. I am magnificent. When we come back, somebody even more magnificent, Preet Bharara. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Freet Bharara served as U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York from 2009 to 2017. He oversaw the investigation and litigation of all criminal and civil cases and supervised an office of over 200 assistant U.S. attorneys who handled cases involving terrorism, narcotics and arms trafficking, financial and health care fraud, cybercrime, public corruption, organized crime, and civil rights violations. The New York Times dubbed Barrara one of the nation's most aggressive and outspoken prosecutors. In 2017, Barrara joined the NYU School of Law faculty as a distinguished scholar in residence. He is the co founder of Cafe Studios and the host of Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Networks. Stay tuned with Preet. He is the author of the top five New York Times best selling book, Doing Justice A Prosecutor's Thought on Crime,
2: Punishment, and the Rule of Law. Preet, welcome to On the Tape. Great. Thanks for joining Danny, Guy, and myself on the tape. We're really excited to have you here. You may not recall, we met five years ago. Oddly, you rolled into a CNBC Fast Money Christmas party with a senior exec from CNBC. You were still in your old seat as U.S. attorney. And I got to tell you, I remember it like it was yesterday when you were walking up to the bar. It was like the parting of the Red Sea. Us old traders could see you coming from a mile away. But you were very gracious back then and really excited to have you here again.
3: Thank you, sir. I do remember that party back when I had subpoena power.
2: And then we had the opportunity to reconnect. Last month, you were at the Recode conference hosted by Kara Swisher. You had this tremendous interview with the SEC chair, Gary Gensler. Did you
3: think that chair Gary Gensler was forthcoming in the interview?
2: No, and I thought that was really interesting He has obviously gotten a lot of praise from different parts of Wall Street or the investor community for, I think, coming into what people think he knows about the business in general and some of his focus is on investor protections. And I think if anything, in the last year or so, when you consider some of the things that have gone on in the stock market and crypto, there's a lot of concern about investor protections. He seems a little high-minded. I want to be very careful here. I think Danny and Guy will kind of agree with me. No one wants to say anything that's recorded coming at the SEC chair. We talk about stocks. We talk about crypto every day. I don't think he's a vindictive sort of guy. He wasn't answering your questions. And in numerous situations, he turned them back to you. And you're like, listen, dude, I just do a podcast now.
1: I have the highest hopes for Gensler. He came out, he's been laying out a great game plan. Then I just saw the GameStop report and I'm starting to already lose faith that anything's going to happen and anything's going to change.
3: I haven't read that yet, but I'll tell you an issue that's been in my mind. And I talk to people not as smart as you, but people who are on Wall Street and others. And one thing he and I didn't get a chance to really delve into, and it's a hard thing to answer if you're a regulator, but there's this tension between wanting to protect investors, and that's very important, and I served that role in a slightly different capacity for a number of years. But on the other hand, there are opportunities for developing wealth, growing portfolios on the part of people who may not meet the technical definition of an accredited investor, and there are a lot of fairly sophisticated people who don't meet those criteria, who say, why am I out of luck? Why can't we figure out a way for us to play in SPACs and maybe in hedge funds and other things? And they think that the only way to get rich is to be rich in the first place and just get more rich. You guys must talk about this all the time. There is a feeling on the part of some folks that they're being left out. And I feel that. I worked in government for a number of years. I've been in the private sector. I'm making some dough. And the opportunities to make more dough are coming to me that I'd never seen before. It took a bunch of money before I had opportunities to make more money. How do you guys feel about that?
0: I would submit, and listen, you can push back on this for sure. I think the playing field for retail investors, traders, whatever word you want to use, has never been flatter. The amount of information they have access to, the platforms they have access to, zero commissions that they have access to. This has leveled the playing field in ways that we've never thought possible. People, you want to harken back to 10, 15 years ago, people were getting ripped off. Now, we can talk about payment for order flow and all those different things, but I think in terms of just access, it's never been better for the people that you're talking about
1: right now. I would echo Guy's comments, but I would just say there still is a negative selection aspect to giving the retail investor access, certainly when it comes to private equity. If you told me that they should get access to private equity, I'm like, that's great, except we know how many people that prospectus and business plan and deck have to go through before it reaches them, because they're not going to get it unless there's not enough demand for the type of investment. I agree with Guy, access has never been better, information has never been better, and everybody should try to protect people. But I always ask myself the cynical question, why am I getting this? Why am I so fortunate to be seeing this?
3: Fraud's a big problem, and we prosecuted a lot of it, and the SEC looks at a lot of it, And so, I guess my question more was, now that I have some distance from being in law enforcement, do we sometimes risk being overprotective? I don't think so, but it's a question I hear a lot of people asking.
0: We talk about this on our show, Fast Money. We do it here on the tape. We do try to protect the people that you're talking about. And the pushback we get vis-a-vis Twitter, email, smoke signals is, we don't want your protection. We don't want to be protected. We understand what we're getting ourselves into. Leave us alone. It's very interesting how this seemingly has come on, I don't want to say political lines, but the vitriol we get back when we're just trying to be helpful is fascinating. Have you found that? Do you get that sense that that's out there?
3: Yeah, a little bit, which is why I asked the question. There's a worry that there's too much paternalism in the name of investor protection. But I would also guess that the people who are sending you smoke signals (laughs) which is my least favorite form of social media, if they're a self-selecting group and because they watch you and listen to you and pay attention that they do believe that they're more expert. But then there are other people who get ripped off all the time in all sorts of scams, Nigerian frauds or what have you, who actually aren't sophisticated and know they're not sophisticated. And so I guess there are multiple categories of folks. Are the truly sophisticated who, by the way, also get ripped off? Many of them by putting their money with Bernie Madoff and other folks like that. Then there's a the category of average person who is doing their own research and watching folks like you and CNBC, 24 hours a day, and they're people who are really not engaged at all. And probably a lot of the the protection of investors falls into that third category, but to the extent it bleeds into the second category, there's a lot of annoyance with that. Is that fair?
1: It is. And Preet, I would say that obviously you're a dream person to have on any board or any prospectus, anyone that's going to answer. Now that you're wearing a different hat, You have positive selection one because people want to attach you to something that gives them a lot more credibility and you're probably investing in great companies and you see the good of everything my question to flip it back on you is we really only see when the tide goes out in a down market that investors claim hey why didn't you protect me and i get it that i'm really speaking about the sec not necessarily the attorney's office but no one wants to be the reason or blamed for taking a company down and it always is when the tide goes out so as far as investor protection No one cares in a bull market, and that's one of the things that's very frustrating, at least from where I sit.
3: No, I think that's right. You characterized what you thought my investment strategy. I have a couple of principles. One is, and I feel this way very strongly about members of Congress and members of the bench on the court, no individual stocks. I haven't had an individual stock in many years. I don't understand, I mean, I was a Senate staffer back between 2005 and 2009. I didn't have a lot of money, and I owned a few tech stocks, I guess. And I didn't understand how I could, in good faith and with a good conscience, take these meetings on legislation a lot of other things. And I'm a mere staffer at the time, and be absolutely clear and feel safe that someone's not going to say, "Will you own this stock, and you gave recommendations to Senator Schumer about legislation. How do you separate those things? And you have actual members of the Senate and the House who are in and out of individual stocks when they are undoubtedly making legislative decisions and policy decisions about those folks. And everyone talks about the donors, but there's also that stock ownership. The Wall Street Journal, after a lot of effort, put out a report, I'm sure you guys saw it, about the number of sitting federal judges who violated the ethical rule of ruling in cases when they owned at least some amount of stock in the company that had a stake in the litigation. Why people like that? Why public servants who have that kind of power, authority, and influence are trading individual stocks. I don't know. And I have maintained the habit of not doing that at all. And then the second thing is the S&P 500 has been very, very good to me. Should I do something different?
0: If the S&P 500 has been good to you, stay with what works for it's you. you it's been good for everybody. Who's done better everyone? than the
3: S&P 500 in the last 20 years?
0: So I want to push back a little bit, Preet, because you touched on something. Now you got me a bit exercised. So if I may for a second. <laughs> so we're talking about two are you very specific- Exorcised
3: or exercised?
0: Listen, at my age, exercise every couple of days, but I'm exercised. And
3: depending on what you say and do, you might need to be exercised.
0: Exactly. So I'm pissed off, if I put it in layman's terms. And I'm pissed off because the two Fed officials that we've talked about on the show a number of times, obviously trading stocks. Now, again, they did nothing illegal. I'm sure it was obviously within the purview of any edicts have been put down or any rules and regulations of the Federal Reserve. All good. Here's my question to you. We're trusting these mostly men, to make decisions that are going to impact our lives, for not for the next five years, for the next 50 years. So to a large extent, we're trusting their judgment. If they didn't have the judgment to say to themselves, even though trading stocks is okay and it passes the test, it doesn't pass the sniff test. And the aesthetics and the optics of this are absolutely awful. If they couldn't see that themselves... And didn't have the judgment to make those decisions. Why should then we trust their judgment? They're going to have impact on this country for the
3: next two decades. I've talked about this with people from CNBC. If you're an anchor, Jim Cramer and I have discussed, he's not allowed to be, I don't believe, Andrew Ross Sarkin. I've had him on the podcast. I'm sure you talk to him all the time. He's not allowed to trade individual stocks. Or if you work at a journalistic organization, maybe you have to get permission. People who are in the business have to be careful. Lawyers at most reputable places, have to run a conflicts check before they engage in certain trading. And yet, members of the Senate or other financial oversight organizations can just trade willy-nilly. I think it's a disaster, and I think the wiser among them don't do it. And the ones who nonetheless do do it, yeah, I think you can question their judgment 100%.
2: Great, in the wake of the financial crisis, there was obviously a great deal of outrage towards a lot of the financial institutions who were taking unwarranted risks that put tremendous stress on our financial system and almost brought it to the ground. Your office obviously has a very wide jurisdiction. You had a lot of success prosecuting insider trading cases in that time period against hedge fund tycoons but there wasn't a huge focus on some of the executives running the financial institutions that almost brought the economy down can you help us think about that because 10 years on i think that's still a question that a lot of people have
3: we did a lot of prosecutions including public corruption prosecutions including gang prosecutions including terrorism prosecutions that had nothing to do with the financial crisis so any office that has a diverse portfolio of work that they do to protect the public and improve public safety and fight corruption does a lot of different stuff. I've been asked this question for 12 years, by the way, as have a lot of people. I've developed the best but still unsatisfactory answer that I can over a number of years. And that is implicit in the way some people ask the question is why did you make some choice in the financial area to prosecute these kinds of people versus these other kinds of people? And you should know, and everyone should know, that enormous amounts of labor, time, energy on the part of the FBI every regulatory agency, certain my U.S. Attorney's Office, U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, in D.C., in New Jersey, you name it. Lots and lots of time was spent looking at a lot of things and a lot of institutions you're aware of, banks, Lehman, you name it. And different people got assigned different institutions to investigate, S P and And after all that labor and energy, for reasons we can talk about, there was never a career prosecutor or agent that I'm aware of who said, we have enough evidence and proof to convict someone on the standard of beyond a reasonable doubt to a unanimous jury. You can't bring those cases. And by the way, it wasn't just the Southern District of New York. Nobody at Maine Justice, nobody at any other U.S. attorney's office, the big shot CEO of a significant financial institution. So I get it. Even more interestingly, I'm not aware of any civil enforcement action taken against an individual at the top of a major financial institution, even though their job is a lot easier. They convict not based on Beyond a Reasonable Doubt standard, but preponderance of the evidence standard. There's some combination of lack of evidence and defenses that these folks had. Was some of it criminal? Yeah, possibly. Were there people who were in the room with the CEO of the company who could give you enough evidence so you could charge them criminally? Not that I came across, not that any of these other people came across. And when it gets to the question of where the effort was, I always like to say, before I and the people who worked with me our prosecutors or public servants were Americans, and we also had skin in the game, many of us. And so we simultaneously, as part of our job, wanted to hold people accountable, and at the same time also as victims of the financial crisis ourselves. And so some of this stuff, and I'm sure you have many listeners who will be sympathetic to this, I'm often in audiences where they're not sympathetic to this, there was not the evidence to do it. And in part, some of the stuff that went on that led to the financial crisis was trading between sophisticated parties where were there exaggerated representations made yeah but then there's also caveats to all those representations you had people who would hire accounting firms and more importantly law firms who they would say in a court of law they relied on them to advise them on the sufficiency of their representations and is that gross was that corrupt in some circumstances was that unethical yeah probably all of those things but if you're talking about indicting someone and bringing them to court and proving them guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, those are actual defenses. And lots and lots of people tried and were not able to put together a case.
1: Having worked with Steve Eisman during the global financial crisis, trading through it, I mean, Steve's passion was kind of like yours was. He wanted to uncover the fraud and protect people. And I'm wondering during that time period, there were a lot of other people, Michael Burry, Paulson was out there trying to create noise about how this was going to end as it relates to mortgage-backed securities. Did you use that information? Not our information per se, but information was out there from short sellers in general to help target and get information since they were doing a lot of the legwork. And the follow-up to that question is, what do you think of short sellers in general, the good ones, I should say, that aren't out there for the quick buck, that are out there to kind of expose fraud?
3: A lot of the investigation was done by the FBI, and they had a variety of sources they got information from. I don't know how much they were talking to those folks. And I know there are people who are short sellers who, in good faith, are trying to uncover bad stuff without revealing anything they shouldn't reveal based on my time. I've always thought and tried to suggest this when I was in office that there should be a robust community of, of people who have information that law enforcement and regulators should be talking to quietly. In the same way that, and I don't mean to compare these two businesses, but in the same way that you develop sources in organized crime families or people who are in and around organized crime families, and it's sort of soft intel, so you find out who's doing what and who's the big guy on the block or in the neighborhood, who's up in the family, who's down in the family. There was not enough of that going on with respect to the financial markets because that was seen as something where you get actual communications and you look at trading patterns and you see what the SEC has as opposed to human intel. And what I think you're talking about is human intel that I think is generally underutilized. What do I think about short selling otherwise? I don't really have an opinion. There was a time when I was a staffer in the Senate where there are people who are really angry at short sellers and we talked to some of them and I think they make a pretty good argument. That you have balance. And there are always bad apples in any category. There are bad people in crypto, there are bad people who are trying to promote their SPACs, and there are bad people on the short-selling side. But I don't think there's inherently anything wrong with it at all, no.
0: Preet, we talk about the gamification of the stock market, and Dan and I doing our show and Danny doing the podcast with us, we sort of put at the foot of the fact that when sports went away for that period of time in 2020, a lot of those people found the stock market. For better or for worse, that's not really the point. But are you seeing this gamification? And if so, does it
3: alarm you a little bit? It's interesting you say gamification. As you were talking, I was thinking, we gamify everything. In the areas in which I have occasion to speak on my podcasts and in my writing and on television, usually we're talking about the gamification of politics, which is also very, very important. And with new kinds of things going on, with respect to the world of finance including crypto there's a certain gamification in terms of gambling attitude about these things i think there's nothing wrong inherently with some of the things that people are doing there's nothing inherently wrong with crypto there's nothing inherently wrong with using outside expert networks which is one thing that we spent some time focusing on when we were doing the insider trading cases it's when people get hurt unnecessarily or are not ethical in how they go about using these new things and using these new technologies where there's a problem There are always going to be people, I think, whether it's in politics or whether it's in business or whether it's in collectibles or anything else, who are going to view things as a game, who's up, who's down, gamble, take risk. But I think that's always been true, hasn't
0: it? I'm not sure it's always been true. It's clearly been magnified. And I think your point about politics is exactly right. We are now in a period of time where it's a cult of personality thing and the loudest voice seems to be winning. And it's not necessarily the most qualified person without getting too political or the most qualified stock for that matter. It's whoever's making the most noise. And first of all, I don't think the end is near. I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Now, you were in a seat that saw that firsthand. Can you speak to that? I mean, you mentioned politics. So let's go down that road. I mean, you saw things that I'm certain alarmed you, that I'm certain at some point you'll write a book about And how do we turn the tables? How do we get it back to some semblance of normalcy here?
3: If I knew that, I'd have maybe more money and more influence and more power in the world. I think maybe the human mind sometimes thinks of the easiest way to analyze data. As we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon, there's all this talk about votes on these bills and on voting rights and on infrastructure. And if you go around, I think more people would be able to tell you who's on what side, like who's up and who's down, and whether the votes are going to go one way or another, which is kind of the gamification of the issue. How many field goals do they need to score to get ahead? Fewer people will be able to tell you what's in the bill. Fewer people will be able to tell you what voting improvements are in that bill and whether they're a good idea or not. Human nature, in part, a little bit, maybe, is made to think about who's up and who's down and who's the winner and who's the loser, as opposed to the difficult substance of what it is that they're fighting about and they're easier metrics it's harder to analyze is this policy good or is this policy bad it's easier to argue about and to see the evidence of is biden going to get it done or is biden not going to get it done and by the way none of this is helped by the politicians themselves most notably the former president who talked about everything in terms of winning and losing as opposed to effort or what's right or what's equitable it's all about winning and all about losing and maybe that's something that is in the american spirit often in a good way, that's what competition is all about, that's what markets are about, having the best product, getting the most market share, getting the most value, and you hope if you're doing it ethically and properly and you have a good product, you make a really good toy or you make a really good tequila for uh, apropos of nothing, then people will buy it and you improve the quality of people's lives. I just think what you're speaking about, these things go to an extreme, not to get too esoteric, it's also part of the freedom we have. It goes a little bit back to the earlier conversation we were having. You think people get carried away with some kinds of things, but then what's the solution? Is the solution to be very paternalistic and to outlaw lots of things, that's a problem too.
0: Well, quickly, and I don't want to take over this conversation, but what you're speaking about is a society that's gotten extraordinarily lazy. What you just described now is just people being lazy and lowest common denominator stuff. And it manifests itself... We see it on CNBC to a certain extent. We saw it recently when one of the interviews on one of the daytime shows interviewed a guy that was trading stocks. It was, I won't mention the stock, but the host asked the participant what the company did and he was unable to answer, which by the way is fine because if you're just trading these things to go up and down, to a certain extent, they just become letters and numbers. But that is extraordinarily problematic as well.
3: You see this all the time in massive frauds what have people been talking about? I'm sure you've talked about it. Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And there's laziness on the part of lay people and there's laziness on the part of what we think of as very, very sophisticated people. And so the lessons that I drew from that are that lots of people who consider themselves to be sophisticated at the heads of large companies like Walgreens, they are really struck by appearance and optics as opposed to substance. And once Elizabeth Holmes assembled that board of very impressive people, some of them from the military, but who, as John Carreyrou and others point out in their various assessments of the product, none of them had any experience in blood and in the technology that was actually at issue. They were otherwise very impressive people. You assemble a board of very impressive people, people want to give money. This the second principle you get from that, and this is a function of it's not quite laziness. I don't know what your reaction is to that massive fraud that's captivating a lot of folks. Walgreens decides, is my recollection from reading about the case, they had some concerns and they were red flags. And I think, by the way, this is a theme that I saw again and again and again as U.S. attorney at lots and lots of companies. It's seldom the case that people are completely, utterly blindsided. That's true in Bernie Madoff. That's true in Theranos. There are some folks who at some point are like, well, this seems effed up. This is a red flag. That doesn't seem to compute. The Walgreens folks, and I apologize if it's not Walgreens, but I think I'm pretty sure it is. They had FOMO. They had fear of missing out because the vision that Elizabeth Holmes and her boyfriend at the time sold was so compelling and extraordinary and exciting that my recollection is the executives at Walgreens couldn't suffer the idea of pulling the plug and then their competitor get the opportunity. And they're like, no, what the, hey, let's jump in feet first. And you see that again and again and again. There's somebody who's friends with somebody who invested with Murdie Madoff They don't know nothing about the guy. He uses like a weird accounting outfit, but they seem selective. This famous person who I trust and respect, and I've known to be a smart guy, says, this guy's really good with my money. They put their money in. That happens all the time. And I think it's a function of laziness, but also a little bit of function of FOMO.
1: Yeah, I think FOMO has been pervasive in this market for a while. But one thing that goes back to the global financial crisis, and I think what we're going to see when the tide goes out here is the risk reward for some of these executives at some of these companies to commit fraud, I'm not naming anyone in general. At the end of the day, it's the shareholders that end up paying the fines. They do something wrong. The company still operates. they a publicly traded company. The shareholders bear it. Rarely do you see, every once in a while, Anthony Mazzillo, you'll get like a personal fine that's conjoined with it. But the culture that's come with this, I think is a problem. And I think you guys talked about politics before. I think the culture and politics, the culture and business, they're converging and it's a little scary. I would love to get your thoughts on the shareholders that just don't ask questions and bear the cost. And do you expect, if this market ever does sell off, and I can preach on that for a long time and be wrong, what we're gonna see. And if you were sitting back in your chair again in the Southern District, which I know you said, touches everything on earth, basically, which was a great quote, Where do you pick? Where do you even start to begin what you would go after at this point when the tide does go out?
3: It's hard to say because we're not omniscient and we're not omnipotent. We don't really live in a surveillance society. So we don't have, on a going forward basis, bugs in all these conference rooms and wiretaps on all these phones. So sometimes when you're talking about prosecuting something that's happened in the past as opposed to something that's ongoing, it's hard to reconstruct the scenario and the narrative and get the facts. Sometimes the cases choose you. I mean, most of the time the cases choose you. You don't choose the cases. It's because somebody came in and blew the whistle and said, I saw a lot of bad stuff at the tobacco company or at the pharmaceutical company or at the hedge fund. And then when you asked this question before, why did you focus on those things? Because they kind of came to us. That's not always true. And sometimes, by the way, it's not just a whistleblower. There's a big role to be played, depending on what would happen in the future, to go back to your question, on who's able to show some evidence of muck And sometimes that's journalists. There was more than one occasion where I read an article or someone in my office read an article and said, let's send this to the securities unit. Let's send it to the corruption unit and see what there is there because we have subpoena power. And sometimes it's journalists. There's this guy once who was harassing people, not the biggest case in the world. And I remember reading the New York Times Magazine coming back from Thanksgiving one Sunday a number of years ago. His name was Vitaly Borker. And he was literally selling fancy eyewear to people, and people would buy it, and it would be crap, it would be broken, or it would be not real, counterfeit. And when they complained, he would scream at them, he would curse them, he would threaten them with rape and bodily harm. And you think, well, why would he do that? Because they would then post the interactions with the Vitaly broker company. And at the time, Google had not yet corrected its algorithm. And so it didn't distinguish between bad reasons for being high in a search result versus good reasons for being high in a search result. This case actually caused them to change that and revise that and he was basically making people worried for their lives who were just trying to buy fancy eyeglasses so i learned about that by reading it in the newspaper and i remember thinking to myself this is a bad guy someone should do something about this guy and then i realized holy shit i'm the u.s attorney i can do something about this guy and i forwarded the article to my fraud chiefs and they're like pre we've been on this for five hours the guy was in custody in four days that's a tiny example but just so people have some understanding Of how cases come about and how they get prosecuted. Sometimes it's stuff like that. And that's what I would imagine when the water goes back out, you see what's sticking out because that's when people start to complain. That's when people start to blow the whistle.
2: So has it been hard for you? You have your gig on CNN. You have this amazingly successful podcast and stay tuned. You have 1.7 million Twitter followers. You have an actively engaged community with you. You feel a sense of responsibility. You spent most of your professional life in public service now, and now you have this amazing voice that a lot of people follow. I know that I followed you religiously during the Trump campaign. I found your interviews amazing on Stay Tuned, but it's that Q&A period in the beginning of Stay Tuned, which I just love, and you're just Taking questions on really anything, a lot of jump balls and stuff like that. So, do you feel a responsibility to weigh in and really to the point what Guy was talking about is sometimes some of the loudest voices are getting some of the most traction, and we're finding that in all parts of our lives. And you have a great voice here. I think it's an important one. And I wonder if you will get drawn back into public service because we are in dire need of the best and brightest at this moment.
3: Thank you for the compliment. I appreciate it. I've always felt a responsibility. Now, there's a reason why. I chose to be someone who speaks and writes and thinks about these issues rather than go back to practicing law and represent people, which is a normal path, represent people who have been accused of crimes. They deserve great representation, not my cup of tea at the moment. And part of the reason I feel that responsibility, we go back to something that we have been discussing for the entire show really. And that is there's a certain amount of lack of understanding or sometimes it's laziness and sometimes it's just people don't have access to information, whether it's about the market Which is more understandable and people seem to get that but there's an equal amount maybe even more given what the stakes are of lack of understanding and lack of focus on democracy people don't really understand how things necessarily work and it's not their job i think we have really really thoughtful listeners who appreciate the lessons in the rule of law and on citizenship i'll never forget this i got a question once from somebody who listens to the podcast a couple of years ago really smart person, I think was like a cardiothoracic surgeon or something, some kind of very impressive doctor. So clearly a person who's worked hard is smart and who's a good citizen and says, people keep just talking about indictments and in the grand jury. Could someone at least explain to me what the hell a grand jury is? There's so much knowledge that gets assumed on the part of folks. And so part of the responsibility I feel, and I think part of the reason we have a good reaction is we explain and try not to assume knowledge. When the former president, in my mind, took things off the rails, it scared a lot of people who care about the country, but it also caused them to wonder, well, how bad is this? How much of a deviation is this from what is right? Can the courts do something about it? Are the courts going to do something about it? And so I think part of the reason that people, listen, not just to me, but there are a lot of folks like me who were in the game, to use that phrase, gamification of prosecution, but were in public service and had those kinds of jobs, they want to hear from people who understand what these things mean what is happening now? And you can still be concerned about it. I've found it remarkable and surprising that, and they'll stop me and it's, and it's very gratifying and say, you helped me get through the Mueller time. You helped me get through the Trump time because I was calmer listening to you. And I was confused by that because it's not like I was saying everything is going to be great. <laughs> it's not like I was saying everything is good. Mostly I said everything is really terrible. But I think the reason they felt that way is it's like when you go to the doctor and they say you have a malady, you have an issue that's going to scare you. And that's right to scare you. But then if your doctor is is patient and explains, these are the risks, these are the causes, these are the treatments, these are the risks of those treatments, and just takes the time to walk you through it because you're not a doctor, but you're a smart person and you care about your body just like people care about their country, that is calming. And it gives you a greater sense of control. The thing that people hate most is not having any sense of
2: understanding or control of what the hell is happening around them. When we think about the loss of faith that so many Americans have, and I think this populist movement that we saw over the last five years is a global thing, and this takes us back to this Gary Gensler interview that you did at CODE that is really what birth crypto in a way it's just the censorship resistant currency in a way where no one can regulate it I thought that was a really interesting conversation and I got the sense that you are intellectually very curious into crypto and Gensler said something really interesting he's like it's a two trillion and it was two trillion a few weeks ago now it's like two and a half trillion global market cap but his job as the head of the SEC is to oversee a hundred trillion dollars of market cap not just stocks but bonds and come on I emmy mean, goes on and on and on. And he's spending a disordinate amount of time talking about crypto. But that's because you guys
3: are asking him. This is a parallel to the questions about insider trading. When I was in office, I got asked about insider trading more than a lot of other things. The way the question was phrased, and you might have phrased it in this way innocently, why are you so focused on insider trading? I'm like, I'm not so focused on insider trading. You are. Because you're CNBC or you're the Wall Street Journal or you're Andrew Ross Sorkin for Dealbook or whatever the case may be. Sort of the same answer that Gary Gensler, Sergei. I got a huge office. We're dealing with violent crime. We're dealing with terrorism. We're dealing with cyber. But that's not as interesting to you on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. What's interesting to you is a billionaire got arrested. Why is there this downfall? Rajat Gupta. That's interesting to the financial press because he was the head of McKinsey and a member of the board of directors of Goldman Sachs. You're not covering necessarily the mafia takedown that we did. Other places might cover that. Sometimes it's the case, not always, that it's the particular press who's asking about some stuff. Chair Gensler has to focus on all this other stuff. But in every industry, in every line of work, there are bright, shiny objects. And the bright, shiny object in your world and a little bit in my world is crypto or it's SPACs. And people forget about the other boring stuff, regulation of mutual funds. In the entertainment world, there's a lot of stuff going on. The only thing I can hear anybody talking about right now is Squid Game because it's the new thing. And... I don't know if this holds true because I maybe analogized too much, but if you said to some entertainment executive, Netflix or otherwise, what about Squid Game, Squid Game, Squid Game, they would say, look, I've got 500 other programs and I've got all these other channels. You guys are asking about Squid Game because it's a sensation and it's a hot topic and crypto happens to be a hot topic and also a fascinating one because it's not so understandable to a lot of people.
2: And I think what's really important about crypto is that every so often we have certain technologies that really threatened to be massively disruptive to a huge system. And that's really what I think drawing it back to the post-financial crisis birth of crypto and really the adoption of it and the memification of it, the gamification of it. It's almost like a cult. It's like a religion.
3: People evangelize it. But I think part of the problem and the controversy, which is less of a controversy now, is it's not really currency. I appreciate the shorthand of crypto as opposed to cryptocurrency. I've been in rooms where people get asked the question, how many of you have ever owned or have ever owned any crypto? And people will raise their hand and then someone will ask how many of those people who raise their hand have ever used crypto to purchase something and almost all the hands go down and so you think whether it's a security or not it's an asset of some kind what's interesting is i don't know what the proportion of evangelicals about crypto are wax poetic about it because they think of it as a unit of exchange that they can use when most people are not seeing it like that i heard another smart person say i guess gary was making this similar point Anytime something reaches a certain kind of scale of use and attractiveness, you got to pay attention to it. And crypto has reached that. And the question is, it's not unfair what Gary said. When you have new things like this, usually it makes sense for them to come within some regime of regulation and oversight, as opposed to existing alongside it. I think the frustration a lot of people have with the SEC at the moment is where everyone's waiting, what's it going to be? Because people want notice and people want to know if what they're doing is going to be challenged and put out of business or not. But I think a lot of the ways people have thought about crypto is just not the way crypto has evolved.
0: That Dumbledore guy, what was that? Those shitty Harry Potter movies? Well, he gave me his magic wand here, Preet. So work with me on this one, okay? And he's bestowed me this power and I'm throwing this at you. I'm going to give you the talent of Steve Van Zandt and you can tour with Bruce Springsteen for a year or... I put you on the bench of the Supreme Court, but you got to pick one. Where are you going?
3: That's actually very easy. I'm going to the East Street Band. I'm
0: going with Bruce. My man. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, you are. You're going on tour with Bruce. Talk to me quickly about your, and it is infatuation with the great Bruce Springsteen. I'm not alone.
3: I'm not alone. I love Bruce. First of all, I grew up in Jersey. Second of all, my dad, for those of you who know Springsteen and know his connection to two major places in New Jersey, Freehold, where he grew up, and then Asbury Park, where he played at the Stone Pony and other places. My dad was a pediatrician in in Asbury Park for 50 years. There's Bruce everywhere, where I grew up, in Monmouth County. I think he is the most durable and interesting and talented artist over time in this country of the last half century. And people can have different views of that. I don't know that there's anybody who over time has put out so much material, has brought people so much understanding of their own lives as Bruce. And then he's the greatest performer and has the most stamina of any person I've ever seen in concert. And I've been a number of times. I always paraphrase or cite to John Stewart when asked the question, why do you like Bruce? And he says, do you like joy? If you like joy, go see Springsteen in concert.
0: Darkness on the Edge of Town is one of the top three albums of all time, and your point about him being, he's brilliant, he's a genius, but he makes things so accessible, you're right. I mean, if I could pick one person to see in concert, and I'm being serious for a second, as much as I talk about the Allman Brothers and Skinner and all my Southern Rock shit, it's absolutely Bruce Springsteen just for the experience, so I totally appreciate that.
3: The other thing to know about him, and I was reminded of this because I just read Stevie Van Zandt's book, that guy is so prolific. There was a point Stevie describes in the late 70s. He put out an album. How many songs were on an album back in the old days when people cared about albums? Like 10 songs, 11 songs? Bruce would write like 50 songs. I think there's some artists, the one hit wonders, they can't write one good song. He would write like 50 songs and have to throw out 40 songs. Some of those songs, I think the promise he wrote years and years ago, which is one of the great songs, I think, comes out later. I mean, it's a rare talent to both be able to sing and write and play, and arrange, and then to do so in such a prolific way. And over decades, he was on the cover of, I think, both Time and Newsweek in 1975. I think the Rolling Stone headline or the first
0: line of the article was, I've seen the future of rock and roll, and his name is Bruce Springsteen. And that was early 70s, I think. So you're spot on with that.
3: 1975. That's 46 years ago. And two weeks ago, I saw him crush it on Broadway. Who else can you say that about?
2: Well, Preet, I share your love for the boss. I've seen him in concert probably 20, 25 times. I also saw him on Broadway a few years ago. I love that show as you did here. And I can't wait to hear your interview on Stay Tuned with Stevie Van Zandt that I think dropped this week too. So we could go on forever on this one. We hope you'll come back and join us on the tape. Thanks a lot, Preet.
0: Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.